HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is made possible by you. HRN is a member-supported nonprofit, and our coverage is only possible thanks to your generous support. Learn more later in the show, or just go straight ahead to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. I was part of an essay contest that I think a lot of fifth graders in the state of Alabama uh, were a part of, and a lot of elementary schools, a boy and a girl would win the essay contest, and they would get to go to space camp for free. And so that's how I was able to go. I had to write an essay about what I would love to learn about space. I think one of the things I wrote was, I would like to experience the anti-gravity chamber. There is no such thing as an anti-gravity chamber. It's true. I am a 2001 graduate of space camp. Whenever people find this out about me, they usually want to know what sort of intergalactic food I got to eat. And my answer is usually something like this. The meals were like straight up cafeteria food. What I do remember, though, that was special and I hadn't seen before was a dip and Dots machine. So the dip and Dots ice cream was basically what we all ate multiple times a day when the counselors would let us go get vending machine food. Yeah. Ice cream of the future. A real throwback to the ice cream of the future. Space Camp is, is located at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, my home state. Last week, they hosted a huge celebration to commemorate the city's contributions to the Apollo 11 mission that took humankind to the moon 50 years ago. In honor of the anniversary, our episode this week is about outer space and the food that powers our exploration and imagination. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Our first story about space food is about the next frontier and how we'll eat once we get there. Pauline Munch finds out what's on the menu on Mars. You know, we're running around with placards, save the earth. There's nothing wrong with the earth. It's save me. That's what the placard should be. Because it's us. This is Dr. Mike Dixon. I'm a professor in the School of Environmental Sciences here at the University of Guelph, and I'm the director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility here. Mike's background is rooted in plants. A PhD in forestry, a postdoc in botany, a fellowship in horticulture. But he's always been into technology. Back in 1994, he started the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility 
which combines these two interests, technology and ecology. Specifically, the facility studies the effect of different environmental factors on plants, things like light, CO2, temperature, water, and so on. And all this they do for a very special purpose. Everything we do in that facility is pulled by the technical requirement to go to the Mars and the Moon and grow food for human life support for long-term human exploration missions. Food determines how far from Earth we can go and how long we can stay. The past 25 years, the facility has been developing biological life support systems. These systems are the cutting-edge technologies which can grow food in extreme conditions to sustain human life. You can't go to Mars for long term and not have some self-sustaining uh, biological life support system because you can't resupply it. It's, it's a two-and-a-half-year round trip because by the time you get to Mars, the Earth is gone. And you have to wait until they line up again two-and-a-half years later before you can go back. Sadly, stockpiling space ice cream isn't the answer. So, figuring out exactly how plants grow is the first step. If we take seeds and biological life support systems to another planet, can they still germinate and grow? First of all, I need uh, you know, a lot of information about the environment conditions. Do I need more insulation, less insulation? Do I need an energy source? Is, is the solar radiation and solar panels adequate to supply the thermal management that's required. Lots and lots of simple technical questions. Mike gave me a tour of the facility to show me how growing food in space might work. First, we saw these big blue things about the size of a big kitchen pantry. They were called hypobaric chambers, and they contain a vacuum. We can create those environment conditions inside these chambers. Okay. Suck everything out and put back exactly those environment conditions. These chambers allow Mike and the team to test methods of growing and harvesting in extraterrestrial conditions. But the chambers themselves are too heavy to actually take to Mars. Mass and energy is the currency of space travel. And this is your eight ton, one and a half square meters. You and I each need at least 60 to 70 square meters of plant production area for our life support requirements. So do the math. 60 to 70 square meters, about 700 square feet, we need to survive. So whatever systems end up being taken to Mars will be a lot sleeker and lighter. Through little windows on the chamber, I could see plants growing. Plants that would eventually end up in space. You'll notice that an awful lot of the experiments grow lettuce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lettuce is not food. Until you put the ranch dressing on it, it really doesn't <laughs> have many nutritional characteristics, right? So we're also working with beans. After Mike showed me experiments with beans, we ended the tour. But I still had a few questions. Other than a bean salad, what would folks on Mars be eating? So all the candidate crops that we've selected for space exploration, and there's a committee that does that, it's a balanced, nutritious, psychologically appealing vegetarian diet. While this international committee is busy choosing which crops will go to Mars, Mike is still exploring whether plants will germinate in space. And the experiments he has lined up sound pretty amazing. The Chinese beat my bucket list of putting the first plant on the moon. But, well, it was a cotton plant. It doesn't count. can't eat cotton. So sometime next year, we'll be putting a barley uh, seeds on the moon and watch them germinate. 
Well, there's a really good reason for barley. Back in 1995, I was appointed one of the conveners of the Malt Whiskey Tasting Society of Canada. So in that context, I acquired a appreciation for single malt. And the single malt, the roots of that, of course, is barley. Humans, <laughs> wherever they go in all of their history, recorded or otherwise, they always, without any exceptions, end up making alcohol. And I've decided it's going to be the good stuff. Before we settle in for the long haul, Mike thinks we'll be on Mars looking for life. There's no question that Mars had, at one time, the kinds of conditions, very Earth-like conditions. So we'll find, we'll dig down to the bottom of a frozen lake on Mars, and we'll find fossils of some microbial critters, for certain, absolutely. So that mission is what will support, uh, you know, dozens, scores, hundreds of Earth explorers on Mars for the next two or three hundred years. And that agenda will require biological life support. You can't, can't do it without it. Food and drink covered. Science and innovation in check. I still can't help but wonder, even after hearing and seeing all this, is Mars really it? Our final frontier? Our last hope? The Earth will eat us up and spit us out. There will be a little spike in the history of this planet where we occupied it, but then we'll be gone. So it's, it's not the most pleasant <laughs> contemplation, but it's true. But it's still the planet, and it's still going to motor on with or without us one way or another. Next up, let's take a step back and trace the history of space food with Oscar Belkin-Zessler. Half a century ago, when we first began sending humans into space, the missions were short sometimes lasting less than a day, so the foods that we sent were basically just snacks. This time period is known as the cubes and tubes era, and that's because different foods were pureed and put into little tubes, and grains and dried fruits were ground up and then packed into little bite-sized cubes. As the Apollo era of space travel came with much longer journeys and extended stays on the moon, it meant we needed a new system for food. Out with the tube and cube snacks, and in came full meals. They were dehydrated and came in what NASA calls the spoon bowl package. And a big part of this was giving astronauts the opportunity to eat hot food with utensils in a way that felt a bit more like what they were used to back home. Fast forward to the mid-1970s, and astronauts were orbiting in NASA's first ever space station, Skylab. With such a cool name, it makes sense that Skylab had the most sophisticated food system in NASA's history. And that's including today's. A lot of the food was frozen, and astronauts had these futuristic sci-fi-looking trays with little heating slots for each individual dish. Unfortunately for us aestheticists, following Skylab, NASA moved away from the self-heating TV dinners to a more shelf-stable model. And so we come to the modern era of space food. Most things are either freeze-dried and need to be rehydrated before eaten, or thermostabilized and just require heating up. Thermostabilization is just a scientific way of saying canned, although NASA puts their thermostabilized food in plastic pouches, or what they call flexible cans. So you're probably wondering what's actually on the menu, and it turns out there's a lot. NASA's list of food is a bit more like one of those endless diner menus than I would have thought. In the morning, you can have your eggs in one of nine ways, or cereal, or oatmeal, or yogurt, or whatever. 
I read that one astronaut, Story Musgrave, liked to eat dehydrated shrimp for pretty much every meal. There's barbecue brisket, stir-fried veggies, burritos, lots of PB&J wraps, and even a bunch of natural form products, which in NASA language refers to unaltered foods and brand name snacks. Things like cashews, M&Ms, and Rice Krispie treats are all available up at the International Space Station, as is nearly every condiment you could dream of. Although, if you're looking to add a little bit of salt and pepper to your meal, you'll have to be content using liquid versions. In microgravity, salt and pepper run the risk of floating into people's eyes or machinery. When talking about food up in space today, we'd be remiss to just talk about NASA, as they're not alone in providing food for the ISS. The Russians, Japanese, Europeans, and Canadians all bring up their favorite foods to share with their fellow space travelers. And this can be traced back to a pretty vital and comedic moment of intergalactic diplomacy. NASA originally set out to put a human on the moon because of the competitive relationship that the U.S. had at the time with the Soviet Union. In spite of this tension, in 1975, in the midst of the Cold War, a joint space mission was launched to dock the Apollo command module with a Soviet Soyuz capsule. They did some experiments, had some bonding time, and laid the groundwork for future international space exploration. But most importantly, they dined together. The legend goes that the Soviets pulled out some tubes with vodka labels on them and instructed the Americans to drink with them in accordance with tradition. It's against NASA's rules for astronauts to drink on the job, so they're probably a bit relieved, though maybe disappointed, when they discovered that the tubes contained only a nice Soviet borscht. We'll be right back with stories about how space travel has influenced how we eat back here on Earth, and how food is portrayed in science fiction. This episode is brought to you by you. This is HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and I want to personally acknowledge you. Our entire 10-year history of groundbreaking food and beverage audio journalism has only been possible because of listeners like you. You usually hear from our incredibly supportive network of business partners during these show breaks. But this week, we're taking a moment to thank the thousands of individual donors who've been part of our family since the very start. You listen to HRN because you care not only about what's on your plate and in your glass, but how it got there and the stories of all the people, plants, and animals that contribute to the food supply chain. So please, this week, take a moment to show us what independent food radio means to you and become a member of HRN. Help us deliver another 10 years of storytelling that will shape the world during a critical time for politics, innovation, food ethics, and the planet. With your help, we can change the world and our food system one soundbite at a time. There's no food radio without you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate before July 31st to do your part to ensure a bright future for your favorite food podcasts. That's heritageradionetwork.org donate. From all of us at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you for your vision and generosity from the bottom of our hearts. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Here's Aaliyah Papes with a fascinating look into the unusual portrayals of food in science fiction. It's not always the first thing we notice, but science fiction is often full of food. Mm-hmm. Time for lunch in a cup. Are you enjoying your Ketmop blood ticks, Dr. Lazarus? Just like Mother used to make. Tea, Earl Grey, hot. Silent breed is people! I've always been fascinated by the way we imagine the future of food, so I wanted to find a fellow sci-fi fan to talk to. 
My name is Ashley Koziak, and I'm the Impact Programs Manager at the James Beard Foundation. I am a graduate from the New York University NYU Master's in Food Studies program, where for the bulk of my academic time there, I focused on food and science fiction. Ashley's research wasn't so much about what the actual food was like. It was more about the way characters ate and what that told you about the world they lived in. Our relationship to food defines our culture and society, even when we're on a spaceship. I specifically looked at three television shows that were science fiction that were all produced during the same time period, 2000 through 2010, just so that they were all kind of going off of the same cultural touchstones as each other, and they all took place on spaceships. Those shows were Battlestar Galactica, Firefly, and Star Trek Enterprise. Each has a different take on humanity's possible future, and we see it in the way the characters eat. Battlestar Galactica, for example, is, if you're not familiar with the show, it's pretty bleak, it's post-apocalyptic, the vast majority of humanity has been wiped out, people are just existing on a spaceship. In the post-apocalyptic world of Galactica, we don't see a lot of wholesome family mealtime around the table. But there is consumption. There is a lot of heavy drinking in Battlestar Galactica. These people are not having like a little pre-dinner Manhattan. They're like drinking to forget the world. It's just like full-on, raucous, blackout drinking. Star Trek Enterprise, on the other hand, is set in a pretty utopian future. Star Trek has existed in this world that's, you know, it's following the, the Third World War. Um, there's, there's peace in the, across the Federation, which is a federation of planets, including Earth. There's, you know, very little disease. There's very little famine. Food is abundant, and people have lots of choices about what they can eat. Everybody has their own tray or their own plate, and it's very distinct, and it's very unique. And, you know, I might be eating meat and potatoes, and you might be eating, you know, crudite chopped vegetables, and that'll just show that we're so different. So even though it's a utopia, the joy of cooking and sharing food together is absent. Versus Firefly, where, you know, things are served family style, which is always a lot of fun. Everybody's around the table eating the same thing at the same time. People get in the kitchen. They get their hands dirty, even if it is using, you know, protein blocks to build a birthday cake. The world of Firefly is much worse off, but our heroes are much happier. It's sort of a Wild West-style space adventure following a group of petty criminals led by the charming Captain Mal. They don't have much, but when life gives them protein blocks, they make them into birthday cake. Ashley and I talked about a lot more of our favorite sci-fi food examples, but we can't get into them all here. So I'll just leave you with Ashley's advice. Watch Galaxy Quest, and I'm going to add on to that, watch Wally. Uh, and then, yeah, just just look, look for the ways food is depicted, if at all, because it's a good tell as to what the producers, what the showrunners are thinking as they're creating this world and, you know, how, how strong are the bonds that kind of bind these characters together. For our last story this week, Hannah Conley discovers that space food is actually also available here on planet Earth. Most of us don't grow up to be astronauts, but you don't have to go to space to get a taste of the extraterrestrial life. Just ask Ekaterina Afanasenko. Yeah, my name is uh, Ekaterina, and I'm senior project manager at Space Food Laboratory. They're the first company to make astronaut food with a few minor changes available to us here on Earth. Their line of products, Astro Foods, were developed with the Public Scientific Research Institution of the Food Concentrate Industry and Special Food Technology, which, since 1963, has been the inventor and manufacturer of Russian space food. 
So this project is first because uh, no one before could adapt real astronaut food for mass consumption and produce it along with the federal primary manufacturer and supplier of the food for astronauts on the ICC, which is International Space Station. Astrofoods are lightweight and long-lasting. They've been used for everything from Arctic expeditions in northern Canada's island of Devon to lunch for busy office workers who just need an easy meal. They follow the production and preservation process originally developed to bring food to the ISS. We prepare the food at first and then we um, run it through this special thermal treatment uh, such as autoclaving to kill all of the bacteria. And uh, after that, we separate into the tubes or cans, depending on the dish. There are a few key differences between astrofood and food that's made for actual astronauts. Much of the food destined for the ISS is now freeze-dried to minimize weight. It is also higher calorie and uses more spices. Astronauts spend three hours a day working out while in orbit to maintain muscle mass and cardiovascular health, so they need more nutritionally dense food than we do on Earth. One of the most challenging parts of developing astrofoods was adapting the flavor of meals intended to be eaten 250 miles above the Earth to taste good on the surface. Uh, in space, taste buds work differently, and uh, even at an altitude of 30,000 feet, uh, taste buds and sense of smell begin to change. Uh, we can also notice that when we're on airplane, the food uses more salt and paper. Of course, borscht is popular. <laughs> And uh, among children, uh, they really love cottage cheese desserts. Cottage cheese is as popular among astronauts as it is among kids. Yes, uh, cottage cheese or quark, as it also can be called, it's valued like a golden space. In zero gravity, human body undergo many changes. Uh, for example, calcium is washed out of the bones. And quark, like no other food, uh, allows to replenish calcium reserves in the body. So on the ICC, everyone knows about the Russian golden quark. And uh, even astronauts from other countries are ready to exchange any dish from their ratio uh, for this quark. Next time you want to feel like an astronaut, forget the freeze-dried ice cream and go for the golden quark. That's our show. Stay tuned after the credits to hear about the most important lesson I learned at Space Camp and how it serves me well now that I work in food radio. Special thanks this week to Pauline Munch, Oscar Belkin-Sessler, Aaliyah Papes, and Hannah Conley. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Are there any um, important skills that you, you've learned from your training that have carried over into your adult life? I think always being prepared to not be able to go to the bathroom at certain times is what I learned. One of the things that we... Space camp culminates in everyone like role playing a space shuttle launch. 
So some people were in a space shuttle. Some people were in mission control. I was a person in mission control. And like halfway through this mission, you're doing like T minus two minutes, T minus whatever. And it's like a whole, you act the whole thing out. I think it took like a couple hours. I had to pee so bad. And you're launching a space shuttle. You can't go pee. Like you have to just be, you know, you have to stay there. And it w- that was one thing, that's one of the most memorable things at space camp was like almost peeing my pants during a space mission. Awesome. I mean, yeah, sometimes sometimes we're doing hours upon hours of interviews at food festivals. Yes. And, and yeah, yes. you've got the bladder control I'm like, go when you have the opportunity. <laughs> that was what I learned from space camp. I didn't learn anything about Mars rocks. Didn't learn anything about engineering, aerospace engineering. I learned about always pee when you have the opportunity. An important skill for all of us. <laughs> yes. 